Uh, you want me to go ahead and start? Okay. Uh, okay, I'm Walter Coker. Um, I guess the reason we're here is because I spent 21 years as a photojournalist uh, at Folio Weekly magazine. It was a really rewarding career, and uh, time's changed, and now I run a fish camp. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Floridiana. That's F-L-O-R-I-D-I-A-N-A. I'm Andre Delena, Mike Lagacy, and I made this for you. I met Walter Coker maybe 10 years ago on assignment for Folio Weekly, his assignment, not mine. I was tagging along with a friend of mine named Mike Mitchell, who was writing an article for Folio about Jacksonville artist Jim Smith. We were at Jim Smith's house, and Walter showed up to take some photos for the article. It was at that point that I put his face with his name and the weekly photo feature through the lens, a standalone black and white photograph, no words. Stylistically, you might call it street photography. The through the lens photos always had an edge to them, some small detail, something interesting that I really enjoyed. In this interview, we discuss some of Walter's photographs, some of his cameras and lenses, so you photography geeks might like that, and later on, we find out a bit about his surfing photography, writing, and travels. I wanted to interview Walter, not just because he's a talented photographer and artist, but because he's been around. He's been capturing photographs and documenting the development of Northeast Florida for the last 30 years, and I thought he might have something to say about it. Enjoy. What got you started taking pictures? Uh, surfing became, you know, is what surfing changed my life in a lot of ways. My dad was a photographer, I mean, just a hobbyist, but he had a, a you know, fairly serious camera. He, he shot slides, and always we would have family slideshows. And um, when I started surfing, I just, you know, I wanted to take pictures of my friends surfing. And uh, my dad was in the Air Force at the time, so he was flying to the South Pacific. And, uh, particularly in Guam, you could buy Japanese cameras for very, very, very cheap. And he brought me one home. It was a Topcon Unirex. And uh, a really, really bad, cheap camera. And uh, that was my first camera, and I started shooting surfing with it. And um, but later on, he, he, I got a Nikonos, which is an underwater camera designed by Jacques Cousteau and, and uh, working with uh, Nikon. And uh, that was a water camera that I could swim out in the water with. And after that, I continued with high school and got into to college. I started at Rivard Junior College, and... I took a couple photo courses there, and then I, when I went to the University of Florida, I decided to major in journalism. My mom was an English teacher, so I, I was pretty good at writing and really wanted to be a photographer, but I did it through journalism, and then I sort of, that's where my interest in photojournalism uh-huh. found its, you know, place. Well, Walter graduated from the University of Florida with a journalism degree in 1979. A graduate assistant he knew had started a magazine called Gator Bait, and Walter was hired to take pictures of University of Florida athletic events. Being out on the field, out and about at the college, he got to know a lot of the staff and faculty at the university, and as luck would have it, in 1985 or 86, by his recollection, he was hired as a University of Florida staff photographer. 
He continued to photograph sporting events, but would also contribute AP Wire photos of newsworthy events being publicized by the university. In 1990, he quit that job and moved to St. Augustine to start a freelance photography business. When I moved to St. Augustine, I, I kind of was in for a rude awakening because I didn't know enough about the market here, and I didn't know, like an outsider couldn't roll into town, even if you're really good. Bottom line is I, my business wasn't wasn't doing it wasn't thriving, well. Yeah, it wasn't thriving. <laughs> it wasn't thriving. In 1992, Walter heard about a position with Folio Weekly through a friend named Jim Quine, also a local photographer and artist. He applied and was hired. This is the part of the interview where we get into the Through the Lens feature. That started in 1998, and uh, the way it started was... Um, I was driving all over Jacksonville on assignment all the time. I was driving out really more than Jacksonville. I was driving all over Northeast Florida. I was driving hundreds of miles a week and I had a camera next to me in the front seat. And I just started, you know, uh, just seeing things and seeing, you know, when you, no matter where you live, uh, no matter what you do, if you learn to see things, you know, there's photos all around. And, and driving around Northeast Florida, it's like such a cultural milieu. You've got, you know, a full spectrum of people and places and cultures and ethnicities and, and all kinds of stuff. So I just started seeing all these things and I, I would see, oh, that, that would make an amazing photograph. But there's no context to run it. You know, there's no, there's no place to to get it out there, you know. I mean, it's not the only reason to take photos is to show people, but it kind of, not all photographers feel that way, but to me, I take photos because I want to share the moment or the, the image or the, the thought or the the place or the person with, with other people. And um, anyway, so I started seeing all these, these photos. There was one in particular that was on West Beaver Street in Jacksonville, a real industrial area, and it was an old salvage yard, and it had probably 30 or 40 toilets all lined up in a row. And they were there, they were, you know, they were there all the time, they'd been there for years. And there was weeds growing up all around them and everything, and I, that was kind of like the one that kept sticking in my head, that, that would, that's an amazing photo. And I never right, stopped well, to take it. Yeah, what photographer, though, like, would not, you know, would see that and not think, okay, there's a stack of toilets, you know? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I got to take a picture of this. Yeah. You know? So I kept seeing that. I'd drive by it all the time, and years, a year would go by, and it was still there, and I was like... I, anyway, we had a great editor at the time named Bob Snell. He came there in, I think, 95, and he changed everything. He had vision. He uh, he was an ass-kicker, you know, and he wanted to take us to the next level, and, and he did. But he was very open to imagery and using photos bigger and and really taking take, pushing me and taking me to another another level. I always had a sense of of I of like appreciating irony or or humor or thing you know I would see things but I I wasn't on a mission to capture them with my camera when I when I I do remember when I was shooting surfing 
I was down at Sebastian Inlet one time, and there was a boat up on the rocks on the jetty. And I'm pretty sure I still have it somewhere, but it was, it was, uh, the name of the boat was The Rookie. And it struck me as, you know, quite obviously, this is a rookie. He drove his boat onto the rocks. And that was kind of, you know, I didn't even think about it for years. But then I, when I started doing my photos for, for Through the Lens, I guess that was almost like a little blueprint for me, like irony or humor or, you know, just something something not quite right or or maybe just too right you know right but so uh, right it's wrong yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah so um i i didn't really shoot that a lot but then once i you know took this on it you know it really really developed quickly i guess i i guess i had a sense of what i wanted to do with it and, and started to develop it really fast we didn't talk a lot about photographs from the through the lens series We did talk a lot about a photograph that he had framed on his wall, though, of an old migrant worker. A portrait of a black man, tightly framed on his face, sharply focused on his eyes. That picture was run as a cover piece for an article about migrant workers and their treatment in the camps that they lived in. I think it was at that point when I saw that photograph and read that article that I realized that Folio Weekly was doing important work, real journalism. Yep. Now, I'm, see, it's, it's, I'm glad that I came back here because this is not exactly how I remembered this photograph. Uh-huh. I remember, I think I may have conflated these two a little bit because I, I remember this being more of a, like an upper body, like, you know, mid or upper body shot, but... Right. It's not. It is a straight portrait. I mean, like, tightly framed, um, s- super uh, shallow depth of field, I uh-huh. guess you would say. Yeah. Um, but uh, I love this photograph. I think it is, it is really exceptional. Yeah, this one was uh, really meaningful to me because this was in 95, and uh, we, had, we were just kind of finding ourselves at Folio Weekly as a more serious paper. Um, We had just, uh, actually this is the first story that Ann Schindler worked on with us and she was unknown to anyone here. And our new editor found her through a few different people. And uh, she, uh, this was her first story and I had not even met her. She wrote the story and I, she hooked me up with a person that delivers food out to the labor camps in Hastings. And uh, I got to ride along with her, which is a very rare access uh, to, to get into these camps. It was, frankly, you know, a dangerous place to be with a camera. Not, for, uh, not because of the labor workers, but because of the, the, camp, the labor camp boss guys. And basically because these people were indentured servants. And... Um, so she had permission to go in there with clothing and food, um, and but she never brought a photographer along. And, and so when we got there, most of the workers were out in the field. And this guy is pretty, you know, I think he's pretty old. He probably spent an entire life doing what he was doing, migrant, um, you know, following the, the work up and down the, the coast and uh, working in fields uh, for, you know, pennies probably. But... Uh, he was there at the at these uh, really um, squalid labor camp uh, barracks and uh, hanging out in the front. 
And basically, I had about, I think, two minutes with him. You know, I took a, uh, I just, I was really struck by his persona and his, his, um, his look. I mean, he was, he was, unfortunately, he was inebriated, um, which they were often, you know, inebriated because that's how they like to keep them. They, you know, work them in the fields in the day and get them drunk in the afternoon and or evening, and then they would have to pay their bills to them for alcohol or crack or whatever it was. But he was uh, a really engaging person. Um, his name was Chicago, and uh, I don't know much about him. Um, Ann Schindler didn't interview him. It was just somebody that I ran across, and um, he he just, uh, when he looked at me and I asked him if I could take his photo, and he said yes, when I put the camera to my eye, he he looked straight into the lens, and I felt like I was looking at his soul. And uh, and I think that's what's so powerful, probably, about this is it's a did did you when you printed the photo, did you frame it more tightly, or is is no, this, this actually is how you took frame it? Full frame negative. Is, whenever you see this black edge around okay. it, back in those days, because this was a film photograph, um, that means it's the very edge of the frame. So that's how. Tight and so this is how it. you saw it through the viewfinder when you were taking it. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. and. I know that to get this super shallow depth of field, you have to shoot with a really wide aperture and a longer shutter speed, or, you know, yeah. How, how did you get it so steady? I mean, because the, the part that's in focus is pretty sharp. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it was shot with a legendary lens, a Nikkor 105 f2.5, which was the portrait lens back in the film days. That was a, it was a legendary lens that um, so and it was you know razor razor sharp lens um, and I probably shot this at, at least f four if not wider maybe three five or even two point eight I can't recall um, but uh, there was it was I was shooting on four hundred films so there was enough light to not have a slow shutter speed um, but the focus had to be dead on I shot about five frames of them with a motor drive. And uh, this was the only one that was tacked sharp on his eyes. Um, mm-hmm. You can see even the front of his nose is out of focus. Right, and I think that's a really interesting you know, point to sort of make here is that really the only part, like this is a tight, tight portrait. You just see his, you know, sort of the, the top of his shoulders in the, in the, in the back. Yeah. And then the only, the only thing that's really in focus and tacked sharp, as you said, is just the surface of his face, even the mm-hmm. end of his nose the end of his nose is out of focus, yeah. and the hair, you know, sort of his halo of the halo of hair around his, his head and face is is out of focus. Yeah, he. Um, um, if you look closely, you'll see a few places where his whiskers are falling on the same plane as his eyeballs, and that's you know that and they're tack sharp too. Every once in a while, you'll find one on his face, but uh, yeah, it was such a small amount of you know small depth of field, such a small amount of uh of items in focus basically that uh it really you know just draws you into into him into his eyes and into his soul is the way i the way i you know view it yeah and you can see a lot of um pain a lot of work yeah and that's what i a lot of hard work that's what i feel i feel like this this photo kind of tells his life story without 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 him speaking i mean it just uh you can feel pain and and uh, pity, and you know, you know, it just it's just a heart wrenching photo to me, and I think other people feel the same way. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, it was, and, and when this came out, um, well, we ran this thing full page, which was I think I'd ne- we had never done at that time. We were trying to 
go to the next level as far as hard hitting journalism and stuff. And this this story got a lot of uh, a lot of attention, and it pissed off a lot of people too, which was really. We were trying to expose some some bad shit out there, and after that happened, uh, after this story came out, it wasn't solely because of this, but there became this awareness of what was going on out there, and some of the big uh, labor camp guys went down um, later on in years down the road from investigations and various people kind of looking into it after this, you know, subsequent to this uh, story. Yeah, like you said, I think it... It tells the story without, you know, even speaking a word. It tells yeah. the story. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was such a good picture, and I'm, I'm happy we got to talk about it. Yeah, it means a lot to me. This photo here was kind of like a, a turning point for us. And I was, mm-hmm. you know, after that, we kind of established ourselves and went more and more in this direction. And, uh, yeah, it was a big, uh, a big deal for us. During the course of our conversation, we talked a lot about photography and art and being a professional dedicating yourself to a craft and having your work seen or not seen or perhaps just seen by millions of people but for free I still do have this this desire to capture moments in time that I don't think I'll ever ever lose even though kind of the the end game is sort of unknown there might not even be an audience you know that that woman, you know, I, I'm, I'm always kind of like fascinated with people like that woman, Vivian Meyer, who was recently, uh, her work was uncovered uh, in Chicago, and she had shot thousands of amazing street photos in Chicago and different cities, I think, um, and never showed a single one to anyone. And and this this guy found them in a garage sale or something, and and bought it all up and it was some of the most fascinating you know amazing work and she had no apparent desire to show it to anyone so you have to kind of look at that and go wow what 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 was she what was her motivation um and apparently it was just to and i don't know if she thought somebody would discover her one day when she was long gone which is sort of what happened but it's just uh I, I like to have an audience for my pictures, but sometimes knowing that there isn't going to be one, I still will take a picture. It's like this picture over here, this guy right here. We did a story on um, this road called Lim Turner Road. It's in Jacksonville, and it runs from like Jacksonville's urban core all the way out to this kind of rural outpost of Callahan. We did a bunch of portraits of people and their businesses and things along the, the whole route. And um, this guy here, I went into this tire store that was out near Callahan, and this guy was working in there, and he didn't own the business. And I told him what I was doing, and he said I could photograph him. At the front of the store, as you can see in the photo, says Ben Stone Tire has the phone number, and um, a couple of three four rows of big big rows of tires leading up to the doorway and they're they're like uh those are truck tires those are big truck tires yeah i guess so i didn't you know i don't yeah they're bigger than your bigger than a car tire so i guess he was doing a lot of industrial kind of bigger bigger machinery and things like that so anyway um it was just all came together i didn't really direct the guy or anything there was a tire tool laying on the on the on the concrete behind him and uh he had one glove on because he was working and uh, no shirt, and 
sort of a little mohawk going. Yeah, a little, and, little uh, faux hawk. Yeah. yeah. And there's a uh, just a hint of an American flag hanging in the background, which I really liked. Yeah, right over, like when I can, right over his head there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, he just stood right there, and I kind of tried to frame him in the doorway with the uh, with the tires and everything behind him and, uh, and so that was conscious like uh yeah I, I usually try to put somebody kind of in you know if there's a natural frame behind them somehow maybe not perfectly square in the frame but uh you know it 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 kind of if you if you picture that that photograph if he was if he had the metal corrugated building behind him he would kind of be the same tone See what I mean? If he were because it's left black and white, bit. yeah, yeah. But since he was in that black space, um, he pops out, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used a pretty shallow depth of field to get him, you know, focused. But yeah. everything else kind of a little bit blurred. Yeah, you know, I I like the um, I like the framing of it. Obviously, I did, hadn't noticed uh, when I first looked at that photograph. I hadn't noticed the flag over him or how the doorway frames his head you uh-huh. know, behind him, which is really great. But um, the, I think the thing that I like the most about this photograph is just his sort of fearless look. Yeah, yeah. Like he, he just he's 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 enjoying having his picture taken. Yeah, you know, like you can tell that. Yeah, but the good thing is, like sometimes he he didn't smile. He wanted to look like the tough guy, so he gives the, he gives this real air of like I'm a badass tire changer, <laughs> and um, and that's what I loved about it. And I didn't direct any of that. Sometimes. You know, through the years, I've, as soon as you pull up a camera, we're just conditioned to say cheese, you know, that that, uh-huh. that whole thing. And I would often say, you know, I don't really want you to do that. You know, if I had to, I don't like directing at all. But um, I love when people are just themselves, and that's what I felt like I captured on him. And I absolutely loved the photograph. But after I had taken that and left, um, I guess he told his boss when his boss returned, that uh, I had been there and photographed him, and I got a phone call from his boss saying if the photo ran, he was coming after me. So we chose not to <laughs> run the photo. I, I, you know, it wasn't, you know, I don't like to bow to that kind of pressure because we had plenty of stories when we were writing stuff that people didn't like. We, we were threatened, but that just wasn't, I was on private property when I photographed that, and it was his, his name is in the photograph, and every the business name is in the background of the photograph and everything. But uh, so we didn't run it, so that photo has really never been seen, other than a show or two that I had. You know, it's kind of one of those pictures that was taken, and with I had every intention of putting it out there, but it, something something changed that, and I still love the photograph. It's still when I look at it, even if nobody else ever does get to see it, it's still. Mm-hmm. moves me and and says something to me. I imagine nowadays if somebody went by and snapped that with an iPhone and put it on Instagram, that guy probably wouldn't have any problem with it. Yeah. Well, there was a time where they were, you know, if you went around with serious looking gear, you know, people thought you're you're like I was doing an exposé on Ben Stone tire, you know, that that he's doing something unethical or maybe he's He's got too many tires stacked out front of his place that that's against code or something. But people people were paranoid. Now, I mean, that's one thing that the iPhone has enabled certain photographers to do. There was a guy I don't recall his name, but he he went into Rwanda or something with an iPhone, 
and was able to get amazing photographs because he looked like a tourist instead of a journalist. And uh, the quality of an iPhone photo now, uh, it does actually open up certain things to to that kind of approach that that weren't that wasn't there before and of course you can send the photo out within seconds you know yeah and, more, and it can be seen around the world within seconds yeah and probably straight from your phone too yeah. yeah yeah i mean those guys can do that now and that's an amazing tool uh for journalism if it's used properly um you know, unfortunately, a lot of newspapers fired all their photographers and started sending out their reporters with iPhones that had no training in gathering images. Mm-hmm. But they would just get something and they would use it. So, mm-hmm. what well, we live in? I think photography is, is uh, I guess, uh, sort of on the future of photography. I mean, there's always going to be a need for it and always going to be a place for it. Um, I don't think that anyone should be discouraged from doing it. Um, choosing it as a profession is, is, a, is another story maybe or something that you should give a lot of thought to. But I, I, I serious, serious photography and photojournalism is always going to be needed. Um, and I know times change, mediums change, technology changes, and who knows what the future holds as far as all that goes. But, uh, um, you know, it's always going to be something that uh, humanity is going to need and want. And uh, I have hopes that that will manifest itself, you know, well in the future. I just, you know, I'd like to leave it on, on that positive note if I could. And of course, that would have been the end of the interview, but I decided to record our conversation as I was packing up. Now, this is my claim to fame. I don't know if you saw this. I was in Surfer's Journal. When? Um, that's my story. Oh. This is over 10 years ago. In Surfer's Journal? Mm hmm. Oh, what is that? Volume uh, 11, number 5, but they don't put the date. Yeah. <laughs> I did all these shots. Okay, cool. And I wrote this story. How did that How did that come about? Um, I, uh, basically, I've been traveling to the Bahamas surfing for, since the 70s. And as I said earlier, I, I, I always shoot when I travel. And um, I just had a great catalog of images from traveling there people places portraits did waves. you did you propose the story or did they yeah, contact I pitched you them. yeah I pitched them and they did on it I actually pitched a photo essay and because uh, I really am not I can write but I'm not very good at it and it takes me a long time so but he came the editor came back and said we want to do it but we want you know so so many words I think 2,000 words to go with it I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I did it. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it came out pretty good. Oh, I cool. was pretty stoked with it. And then I got published again later on, and I got one coming up, actually. What's the, uh, what, was, what, were the, what are those? This here? No, 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 what, what, the uh, one that's going to be published. What was um, the other one that was published? They're all from the Bahamas. Um, hmm. 
all from really the same island. This is just a little. They're all they're getting progressively smaller and shorter. <laughs> the essays, you mean? Yeah, this is the last one. That one was multi-pages with a bunch of pictures. This was just one photograph and this story right here, little vignettes of little things that happened there. Mm-hmm. And my next one that's coming out um, in the fall in Surfer's Journal is a um, just a, a little. Um, I travel. I went down there in January this year, the same island I've been going to for 30 years, and I found a wave that I never knew existed. And it was just this one venture out to this island and paddled across this sound and climbed over this rock, and there was a beautiful wave breaking there that I'd never known about, and I don't think anybody's ever ridden. That's awesome, man. Yeah, so. I, I'm, I'll look forward to that. I, yeah. I, uh, I've actually been sharing Surfer's Journals with a friend of mine who, who gets them. Oh, yeah? And he reads it and then passes it to me. And, uh, you yeah. Know. Um, but I, I love the magazine. I think that's great that you're well, it's it. the it's, it's, to me, the best magazine going as far as... I mean, it's a, it's a little bit more intellectual, and it's for, you know, it's for the... Steve Pesman was a publisher and editor of Surfer at the time, uh, for, uh, for a time. He's a, an older guy, but he had this idea, sheesh, it's been a long time now, of, of putting out a magazine that's not, you know... For teenagers, basically, like surfing and surfers, is, is not just surf porn, but yeah, like, exactly. You know. Yeah, some some you know they do artist features in there. They do, you know, they do different things, and uh, and it's definitely a more intellectual approach. And they have amazing quality reproduction of your images, which yeah, is also. Yeah. But when I got in there, that was kind of like my my biggest accomplishment and now I've been in there twice and I'm going to be in there again so I'm just really stoked to be in there it's, yeah to me that's like my you know that's when I kind of felt like I I have some credibility as a surf surf journalist and photographer that's that but, that's what puts you over the top yeah I mean when I was a kid when I started shooting surfing in the 70s I was like god I'd love to be a photographer for a surf magazine you know and then I I didn't realize, obviously, where it was going because you actually could make a living. Had I, had I maybe stuck with it, I, I got published in Surfer in 1979, just a few little posted, posted stamp size black and white photos. But you know, I just loved the idea of being published, you know, and being printed because I'd never that had never happened to me before. And uh, surfing was what got me into photography, and it's my love love of my life sort of you know that passion that I yeah. that I plan to do forever and uh, to be able to kind of be recognized for capturing a certain facet of it is pretty exciting to me yeah. what do you have loaded in your Nikonos I have some color negative film and uh, ISO 200 <laughs> I see you got it marked yeah 24 <laughs> exposures because I had a feeling I guess when I put this in here that it might not be shot for a while <laughs> you might forget what's in there there's no there's no light meter in this camera oh. so you gotta you better know your ISO when you go shooting with it yeah, yeah. so you can get in the ballpark of a proper exposure and and uh, what you have some black and white Ilford there yeah or is that panatomic f 50. ISO 50. It's an amazing fine-grained film yeah. that I loved using. But uh, no mas, as they say. 
The expiration date was uh, May 20, 2005. It's not that long. I'm, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I, I would use it. Yeah. I totally would, too. Are these, are these cameras uh, usable? Those aren't. Um, they were just given to me by different people. One an old brownie box camera, I believe that yeah. is. And uh, I'm not sure on this one. I'm not too familiar with it. I just kind of like the looks of it. Yeah. Yeah. So. What are these? Uh... Those are from the Crescent Beach Challenge. Uh, it's a, a paddle race. Grover's hot boiled and roasted peanuts. I love it. West Sider. Is that Grover? Uh, I don't think so. Grover's <laughs> minion. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Uh, actually, this is the, uh, the Surfer magazine that I first got published in. It was uh, in the back in the pipeline section. Right there. Nice. Where did you take that? These are in Satellite Beach where I grew up. Dude, that's a pretty nice wave. That's Sebastian Inlet. Wow. That's Satellite Beach and that's Sebastian Inlet. That's sweet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was my first uh, first real published pub being printed in a magazine. That's a good feeling, huh? Yeah, it is. It was. It, it lasted. It, it uh, stuck with me. Let's see. It was. Oh, here it is. This is what I came over here to show you. Alternative Weekly Writing and Design. I won the first place for the photo essay. Did you know Armando? The I don't. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. He kind of lived under the bridge there. Exactly. At, at West well, King. And, uh, my story was called Under the Bridge and uh, won a first place as the cover. I remember that. Do you? Yeah. I remember that folio. Is he still around? No. I, I, well, I don't know. And I wrote this as well. That was pretty heavy. Yeah. And I, I, I remember this guy being around. This is around the time that I had I was uh, living on my boat at Hidden Harbor, mm-hmm. so like we were basically neighbors. I love this picture, the yeah. American flag and everything. It was during a rainstorm. We hid out under this carport thing, or it was a garage business actually. I hadn't realized you wrote that too. Yeah, yeah, it was a uh, pretty, pretty intense story. Homeless Wanderings and Malt Liquor, a trip through Armando Garcia's St. Augustine. Yeah, that was my first place. From photographing surfers in Satellite Beach, migrant workers in Hastings, and tire mechanics in Callahan, to his operation of Ganung's fish camp at the base of the Crescent Beach Bridge, Walter Coker exemplifies what Mike and I refer to as Floridiana. It's only fitting that we close with a short account of how his work helped in some small way to preserve an icon of St. Augustine. This is my photograph of the Bridge of Lions. This was, I don't know if you were around when the Bridge of Lions rehab or tearing it down and rebuilding it was a big deal, a big issue. I remember that. Um, Anyway, we made, they did the National Trust for Historic Preservation did a list of 
11. I don't know why they chose 11, but not the top 10, but the top 11, I guess. But anyway, they put my photograph of the Bridge of Lions on the cover. Um, and it got quite a bit of uh, attention. And ultimately, we ended up saving the bridge, which was a rare victory around here. All right, they rebuilt it sort of the same. Well, they restored in, in the, it back to its original. They changed, you know, these are the old, these are the lights that were put in later. Um, the color of the bridge is not, it's, you know, now it's the original color. Anyway, they did a, a historic, you know, rent restoration is what it was. And everybody was, oh, we need to tear that down. It's not historic. It's only, it's built in 1927. If it's historic, I'm historic. You know, these old guys and saying how we need a four-lane high-rise bridge going into a 15th century city. <laughs> like, where are you going to go with the traffic then? Anyway, it was a rare victory, and I guess I like to think I had a part in it. Yeah, some small hand in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Been a lot of things like that over the years. It's been rewarding in some some fashion. <laughs> well, that's it for the second episode of Floridiana. I really appreciate it if you've made it this far. I'd also appreciate it if you'd spread the word. Tell anybody you think might be interested, whether they live in Florida or not. Anyway, I think it's a measure of Walter Coker's modest and unpretentious personality that the best part of our conversation came as an afterthought after the interview was over. All I can say in closing is that it's a real pleasure to get to know someone like Walter. If you'd like to check out some of Walter's work, look him up on Instagram. He publishes photos there as we coker at w-e-c-o-k-e-r although he says he owns the domain waltercoker.com he hasn't created a website for himself if you want to know about upcoming shows other places you can find his work stop in at gnung's fish camp he's there most days if he isn't surfing <laughs>